Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SMB lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at A.E. Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. Think Like an Owner has teamed up with the podcast app Clever FM to provide show-specific features like searchability, sorting episodes by tags, episode transcripts, and the ability to highlight and annotate episodes. Do us a favor and download Clever FM on Apple or Android and tell us what you think and what other features you'd like to see. My guests in this episode are Austin Hall and Palmer Higgins. A few months ago, I ran a survey with Think Like an Owner listeners to get a feedback on the direction of the podcast. And one of the questions I asked was on new episode formats. One of those formats that received great feedback was facilitating conversations between two owners in similar industries where they could dive deep on their own businesses in a way I can't since I don't operate a business like theirs. I reached out to Austin and Palmer, who both lead lawn care businesses in Chicago and Maine, respectively, and are great friends, and they were up for testing the format with me. This wide-ranging conversation between the two of them covers what they're struggling with in their companies, pricing and materials, hiring and training, Traction's EOS implementation, and everything involved in scaling a people-intensive business. Please let me know what you think of the format. I'm posting this episode specifically to get feedback on the format and if I should do more episodes like this one or not. Send me your thoughts via email to alex.e.bridgman at gmail.com, on Twitter where you can find me at aebridgman, and finally via my website alexbridgman.com. Thank you in advance for sharing your thoughts. I hope you enjoy the episode. It's good to see you both on the podcast. Thanks for participating in a variety of projects. Paul, you've been on the podcast twice and Austin, you've participated for a handbook article, so excited to have you both now together. I know you chat frequently, but would be excited to just hear first a quick background from each of you. Palmer, I think more folks will be familiar with you than Austin, but we'll have you do a quick 20 to 30 second pitch on who you are and what you're working on. So Palmer, do you want to start off? Sure. 
So Palmer Higgins, a partner of Chenmark, which is a holding company focused on acquiring long-tenured small businesses with the goal of owning and operating them indefinitely. And currently serving a little bit of double duty as the CEO of one of those companies, mainly Grass, which is a residentially focused lawn care and tick mosquito abatement company in Northern New England. Austin Hall purchased Greenwise in late 2018. So I've owned and operated the business for about three years now. We're a Chicago-based company, just north side of Chicago, similar to Palmer's business. We offer lawn care services. We're sort of more full service in nature. So we offer landscape construction, landscape maintenance, snow removal, some insect and pest control services. Came from the financial services industry, was working in investment banking and private equity. But before that, my family had owned and operated a small business for quite some time, 35, 40 years in Indianapolis where I grew up, had small business in my blood in a way. And for a long time, I had a desire to be an owner operator of a small company. So here I am. And how'd you guys get to know each other? That's a great question. How did we get to know each other? We've been talking every other week for a really long time. I think four or five years. Yeah. And funny enough, we just met in person like three, four months ago uh, for the first yeah. time. I actually think I had followed Chenmark for a while when I was in business school. They came on campus, uh, Trish James and Palmer to give a presentation. And we're talking about Seabreeze, their commercial landscape business. And I think I asked them some sort of really silly question, like how in the world can you compete against Brightview? And now to me, the answer is like totally obvious on that. I think since that time, I had just viewed them as people that knew the landscape space extraordinarily well. And during my search process, started to narrow down on one of the sectors was landscape services. So I reached out to Palmer as a resource. And in a way, Palmer and I are the same age, but he's been a a kind of a mentor of mine ever since that time, helping guide me through the acquisition of our company. So I owe him a lot. So what's the obvious answer for the Brightview question now? Palmer, you probably have a better answer than that. You, you probably talk to these clients all the time. I have my own version of it, but why don't you start? I'm, I'm a lawn care guy, so I don't compete with Brightview anymore. I'd say like from our vantage point, and I think it's a similar answer to the question that we get a lot is, hey, if you own multiple landscaping companies, why don't you consolidate them and combine them into one brand? What we believe and what we've seen is that a lot of these businesses operate in sort of a, a regional manner. And being close to the action is quite important. You can establish better rapport, better relationships with your clients. You do give up some ground on this, what we call like sort of the super regional or national players who want to deal with one vendor across their entire footprint. The benefit with us basically covering the majority of New England is we can coordinate among ourselves and still provide those super regionals sort of a, a quasi single point of contact. Obviously, we're not national, but we think it gives us just a better touch with the client better service and a better relationship. Yeah, I don't think I could put it any better than that. I mean, candidly, we're, we're a residential business, so a different animal. You don't see a lot of large residential landscape companies, uh, especially in the maintenance side, competing even regionally because I think of the similar dynamics of what Palmer described. With residential, though, I think it's even more pronounced where you have individual homeowners who want to deal with you know, a local company they like dealing with, we're, I would say we're somewhat boutique in a way. We're a small business. I think it's good for our clients to know that it's operated by somebody who's local. They can just have some peace of mind that the right details are being focused on, that we're going to be responsive and that we're not too big and we're not too over our skis in terms of managing a huge business. But I think Palmer put it better than I could for the commercial side. So, Paul, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but I'd be curious what, leading into our you know, chat more deeply, what's been top of mind for you the last three to six months or so? So, I'll put a quick pin in that just to say, Austin, very kind words. The feeling's mutual. It's been awesome to be able to talk to Austin. Chenmark has a cool dynamic where I have other CEOs of other operating companies to, to talk to, but it's actually great to have an outlet that's outside of Chenmark and to have that cadence to be able to talk to someone who's as thoughtful as Austin is awesome. So, I, I want to make sure. It wasn't just uh, one way, man. It's definitely two ways. So three to six months, that's an interesting timeline. I was actually just talking to someone about this yesterday that we're a highly seasonal business. So six months basically encapsulates the majority of our season in 2021. And I would argue that 2021 is a more challenging COVID year to operate than 2020, at least for us. So on the one hand, and I can dive into that if you want, but on the one hand, COVID was and operating within this year with COVID as in the background was interesting to say the least. In the last three-ish months, two primary things that I have been focused on and my team has been focused on. Number one is just the supply chain has hit the lawn care industry hard. And 
gearing up for 2022. This is a time of year when early ordering is happening for next season and trying to get uh, price certainty and or supply certainty at this time is incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging when customers are expecting us to give them pricing now for next year. And the other piece is a pretty huge push into training and development. We've sort of overhauled how we develop, especially our field technicians and how we train them and the career path that we're trying to put in front of them so we can turn what is, has historically been thought of as a job into more of a career. Uh, and that's taken a considerable amount of work and probably a lot more work than I thought when I kicked off this project last winter. One thing we talked about a lot is pricing for materials, but also just for customers in general. But it would be, I think it'd be fun to kick things off with just a little bit of discussion around pricing. What are price increases that you're trying to look at or what are materials going to cost you? How are you kind of navigating through a bunch of different prices, both for your vendors, but customers as well? I'd be curious to start there. Pricing, it's pretty all-encompassing. And I think it's going to hit every business regardless of what types of inputs you have, whether they're materials, whether it's labor, whether it's a mix of both or all of one or the other. The impact is going to cascade down across industries and it's going to impact a lot of things that are tangentially related to price. So in my world, in Mainly Grass right now, the big complication is we have one opportunity once a year to set pricing. And that's right now. Our renewal letters will go out next week and we will be effectively giving, guaranteeing pricing to our current customer base for the entirety of 2022 in mid-November. And that has a ton of complications when vendors are reluctant to give me pricing on some of those input costs as far out as March, let alone September, October of next year. And so we're, we've had, we're wrapping up conversations, wrapping up decisions that we've had to make in anticipation of renewals going out in an environment where our inputs are variable on a longer term than the output has to be to the customer. And we don't do multi-year contracts, so everything gets renewed, except for very rare cases, everything gets renewed on an annual basis. For your world, Austin, I have to imagine that it can be even more complicated if you're signing up a commercial account that's multiple years and you're struggling trying to figure out what's happening next year, let alone in two or three years. Yeah, it's interesting. We're, we actually operate pretty similar to you then. We only have annual agreements. We have very few multi-year contracts. And generally, those are for our store removal contracts where we just have more visibility on labor and material pricing. Like for instance, ice melt is pretty stable for us as has been like snow removal labor costs. But for our green season services, landscape maintenance and, and turf care, we're, we're similar to you in that we, we send out renewal letters a little bit later than you do. And in our conversations in the past, I think you talked about November being the right time frame. We generally send them in January and February. So we've got a little bit more flexibility to get visibility on pricing for next year, but we're struggling with the same thing. I mean, candidly, I, I'd like to push up our renewals to November and December. A big part of it is for cash flow reasons. You know, we have prepayments, prepayment programs, of which we can talk about here that are similar to yours where customers we'll get discounts for prepaying in advance, but I'm just not comfortable sending out numbers until, I mean, we can't get material pricing from hardly any of our turf care vendors at this point in time. And they really won't give us visibility yet on when they're going to be able to provide it. I don't know if this is the right way to deal with it, but like how the only way we've been able to get over that is we've essentially pre-ordered 90 plus, 90, probably closer to 95% of our product needs. I just set the final order in today. So what's it? November 9th. So I'm essentially bought out until the only stuff I haven't already pre-ordered is the fertilizer I plan on using in the back half of my last round. And that's only because my distributor couldn't actually fit the quantity of material I needed. If he could have, I would have bought the entire thing. And that rolls into discounts because I, I love getting cash in the off season too, but to keep the economics for us, we're dropping our prepayment discounts pretty significantly. We used to, used to be 7% for years. Last year, we upped it to 10%. This year, we're dropping it down to five across the board. What are you guys doing? On, on uh, prepayment discounts? Yeah, we've actually been more consistent on that. We've, well, in the past, we had a, a 5% prepayment discount up until when the season began. So I think that was historically like March 31st or the, the end of February. And 
we bifurcated it a couple years ago to distinguish between pre- credit card payments and, and cat or ECH and uh, check payments. Obviously, credit card fees being in the range of two and a half to three and a half percent, we wanted to account for that. So we're now at six percent if prepayments are made with ACH or check and three percent with credit card. Honestly, I would say we didn't really see a ton of change in behavior because of that. We probably have a pretty similar mix of ACH and check versus credit card payments, even with those distinctions on prepayment discounts. Yeah. And I remember you telling me this before that, because we, we drop our, we don't make, we don't distinguish between ACH and credit card, but we do distinguish between the time of year that they prepay. And so if they prepay early, they get a 5% discount. If they wait a little bit longer and they prepay just before the season starts, it's a 3% discount. We've had a lot of discussions internally about whether or not that's necessary. I know you say that it's not, that customers are going to prepay regardless, whether like, regardless of the discount, they just care about the timing. Yeah. That's been our experience in the snow season. I, We've done a better job of getting our act together for snow and getting our contracts out earlier in the season. And what we found is that if we send them in late August, early September, the upcoming winter, those contracts begin on November 1st. People just, you know, especially in the residential context, want to get that off their plate. So we'll see people prepay as soon as the contract comes over. We have far more contracts on the landscape and lawn care side. So it just takes us longer to get everything out. And we really haven't had to scale down those percentages because we generally will send the renewals in January and February and the the prepayments are due within six to eight weeks of the contract being delivered. But I do think that when we we are more organized this year, we're going to get them out sooner in November and December. And I just I just see people prepaying in the same kind of frequency and, and that we've seen in the past. I don't think it really matters when the renewal goes out, but we'll have to see how it goes this year. Yeah. Do you do an installment? We do actually. Yeah. We've, we have three types of ways to pay. So one is a prepayment. Another is per service. So after the service is performed and then the other is an eight installment program over the course of the season from, you know, March until October, November. Ideally for us, people prepay at the start of the season or they're on installment programs with auto payments with credit card. And we just find that we probably end up saving money. If you think about the credit card fees versus trying to chase people down and collecting, we probably save money, even including the credit card fees on those installment plans. That's probably the biggest move that we're moving towards is like the, because it's so seasonal, we don't do any snow. It's historically been all about prepayments. And it's nice. It feels great to have a boatload of cash when you have zero revenue coming in the door, but it is still a liability and historically we've given up a discount to do that. What we're doing now is flipping the script and saying, we'd actually prefer installment plans. And for us, it's a little bit different because installment plans are a quasi prepayment because they're 12 months out of the year. It starts in January, goes to December. So for January, February, March, we're getting one twelfth of the total bill every single month, despite the season not having started or maybe towards the back half, the back end of March, it might have. But the huge benefit to us is what I realized this year, I don't really know why I didn't put two and two together, is prepayment customer, they have to prepay every single year. So we spent all this whole time in the off season trying to connect with over 10,000 customers, getting them to prepay or asking them if they want to, if they don't, if they just want to enroll in auto pay. Whereas installment billing, it's just auto renews, which doesn't mean that customers can't cancel. Of course they can. We just And if they do, we just refund whatever has been charged on the card. But it creates a mechanism for them to touch base with us in the winter without us having to chase them down and say, hey, do you want to prepay or not? We're, we're in this limbo status. And if, if they don't touch base with us in the off-season, despite all of our efforts, we're stuck trying to connect with them when things are getting super busy in April. So we're actually trying to de-emphasize prepayments, but it sounds like you're trying to emphasize them. I actually think maybe I misspoke there. We're, we would prefer to have the installment plans with auto pay on credit card because you just think about the prepayment discount, it's a five or 6% of a thousand dollar program. So it might be 50 or $60. And if you either have the cash to, to support it, or you have a line of credit and money's pretty cheap right now, you, we can afford, I think a big part of it for us has been being able to buy inventory at the start of the season. We stock a ton of fertilizer and seed and weed control products and all the stuff in bulk material for our landscape construction projects. A lot of the stuff that that your landscape companies are buying two Palmer and the prepayments have been a- enabled us to do that. But we would still be able to draw on our line of credit and fund those purchases if, our, if 100% of our customers were on installments. And I think that the cost of capital is 
it's just cheaper with debt financing than it is a five or 6% prepayment discount. But we have a lot of people that are just that behavior ingrained. They've been with us 10 plus years and the prepayment discount is, it's not the reason that they work with us, but it's pretty attractive to them. So I don't think it's something that we'll move away from because I think it would feel as if we were taking something away from somebody if we were to, if we were to eliminate it. Totally. It's literally the exact conversation we had internally where I think everyone on the team likes installments for a whole host of reasons, but no one wants to get away, get away from them completely, nor do we want to obfuscate the fact that we still have them because there's definitely some, some cohort of customers that really like it and want to do it. And I'm happy to extend a discount for them if they want to shell out, you know, their entire year's worth of services in, in December, the year prior. What I found, it was just, it became so acute when we just moved our maximum prepay discount from seven to 10% this year. It seems like such an inconsequential number. And you talk about like, oh, thousand dollars, it's a couple, you know, 50, 60 bucks. If it's five or 6%, when you're multiplying that over 10,000 plus customers, we were just giving away so much gross profit and prepayment discounts that like it, it became very acutely aware that it, for us, not necessary as long as you think that you can still hold on to those customers and, and my view is if the prepayment discount is the only thing keeping our customers around then we're clearly not doing a good enough job so this year particularly i used lower discounts on the prepayment side to offset what would have had to have been higher price increases on on services all around but that obviously comes with the potential ramification of some customers not being happy that the 10% discount that they liked so much last year is no longer there. For us, we've looked at that math with the prepayment discount and we could probably add two points of margin to our net profit by eliminating it entirely. But for a residential client base, it's just not practical. So I don't think we'll move in that direction. What I would like to move away from are per-service billing. And there's a lot of people out there who say, especially newer customers, that they want to see the invoice. They want to confirm the services that we provided. And an installment plan can be a little bit vague. You're paying eight equal installments of $100 a month. Although we send email confirmations and email schedule updates, and we actually leave physical leave behinds when we perform our services, clients just feel better knowing that they know the service. Some clients, they know the service was performed and then they're comfortable paying after that fact. But in a residential context, I'm sure you see this 10 times, <laughs> 10 times the size of us, that it's just, at least on the turf side, it's just really hard to get people to focus on paying their landscaper or lawn care provider. When I hear about folks in the, the HVAC or plumbing industries, when you're doing in-home installations and you're using a, a platform like Service Titan and the customer is literally paying by credit card on site, I wish we could move towards that model, but I haven't come across many landscape companies who operate in that fashion. You're running on a spire that doesn't isn't necessarily set up to be as smooth on auto pay. We, we do auto pay and I have no problems with it. We do the service, we post it, we mark it as complete on the tablet and that evening their card gets charged and it's very smooth. But I don't think Aspire has quite the same smoothness to it. I will say one of our landscape companies had a similar problem to you with installments. I think actually more pronounced is that they were on installments. So customers are trying to contract saying, yes, I agree to pay X dollars every single month for whatever, seven or eight installments. But it had become practice that they w they wanted to show the work that was done that month in a fairly itemized fashion. So those installment invoices were getting held up by work tickets being completed for the month before the installment invoice was going to go out. You go out for a bunch of services in April, you need all those work tickets completed and, and verified and closed out before you can generate the work ticket report, which then feeds into the activity report that goes into the installment invoice. So the bill for April wasn't going out until mid-May, just so it could have the services for April, which is a brutal drag on working capital, especially in a seasonal business. So what they ended up doing is they just bifurcated it. They didn't want to get away from that email completely. And so they just flipped the script and they sent out invoices on the first of the month, and at the end of the month, they sent a summary wrap up of here's what was completed on your property that month. It sounds so simple and obvious, but there's so much hand wringing around the, the change of that and how customers were going to be asked to pay a bill that service weren't, wasn't necessarily directly tied to services. I'm just trying to get over that and say like, they've signed a contract. They know what services entails. Those services happen seasonally and you're still going to give them 
you know, the report every single month of what was done at their property for that month. As is the case for a lot of these things, like a lot of concern and nervousness and valid to some extent because it's change, but has been adopted wholeheartedly without issue. That's interesting. That's something we may want to consider. We found a way to aspire to link installment invoices to completed services, but we're doing it similarly. We invoice once a month at the beginning of the month. Service that was performed on October 1st likely wouldn't be billed until November 3rd. And then we used to have 30-day payment terms. We actually shortened that to 10 days, which we got some pushback on that. But the, the thinking was by the time that we've invoiced and collected, it could be 60 days from when the service is performed. And like you described, I mean, we pay weekly for uh, hourly payroll. We moved from bi-weekly to weekly because just the, given the nature of our, our workforce, that was important to them. And we, it was, there was a financial cost associated with it, but we thought it was the right thing for the business. But we're having to float wages for 45, 50 days between when the service is performed, the laborers are paid and the client pays us. And it's just when that compounds on itself as you grow and grow, it can be a real, not just a strain or work, a drag on working capital, it can be a real strain. Well, especially in a seasonal, if you just look at a landscape contract, even if you're on equal installments, or even if it's just pay as you go, so much of that work is barbelled between spring and fall. So like you ramp up, you do a, you do a bunch of spring cleanup work, you spread mulch, very expensive. You're waiting, you're having, you're having to float that for 50, 60 days across a customer base that's thousands of customers. Yeah. I've seen that happen. Yeah. I think a lot of it is just about communicating to clients as best you can why these types of changes make sense for the business and how it can be a win-win. It's hard to do that at scale with a thousand or 10,000 lawn care clients. I think it's probably easier in a commercial context when you got in the hundreds of clients. I'm not in the commercial business, so I don't know for certain if that's easier, but when it comes down to it, if people have an issue with payment terms or people have an issue with installment billing or prepayment discounts, we all often find that if we can get them on the phone and have a conversation about why for a local small business, we're not a national company, it's helpful for us. Usually we can, usually we can make that change pretty seamlessly, but you got to have a lot of people in the office to have all this conversation. So in, in a residential context, it just requires a lot of resources, especially in the renewal process. Yeah. But when you're doing installments, those installments aren't fixed up front. The installments are based on monthly invoices based on work done that month. No, they are fixed up front. An $800 program would be invoiced $100 a month. Got it. So why not, and some of our other companies have done this, like why not send out May's invoice April 15th with 15-day terms so you're getting it ideally May 1st rather than having to have the 10-day terms discussion or like if you want to take them 30 days, great, send it out May, send it out April 1st with 30-day terms. So it's due on May 1st and it's the mm-hmm. May installment. I know that's almost impossible in Aspire, by the way, but I know it can't be done because I know one of our companies does something mm-hmm. similar. We haven't thought about separating installment invoicing and per service invoicing and doing them at different times of the month. That would be interesting to think about and probably wouldn't get a lot of blowback from that. We've just done it all at once in part because when we send out monthly invoices, generally that generates a lot of phone activity and email activity and our administrative staff has to put on their armor and suit up to, to field all of that dialogue with clients. So we've just done it all at once, but that's a good suggestion. Have you ever done like an analysis of which customers contact you and how frequently? Because I get this a lot. We have you know, over 10,000 customers and have a whole team now of 12 people that answer emails, answer phones, live chat, that kind of thing with all of our customers. And we track activity. So I can see when spikes happen, I can see that everyone's bogged down with phone calls or, or emails. But what I can't tell, is it like 20% of our customer base? that's emailing and calling us all the time? Or is it 100% of our customer base that happens to touch base like every now and again and that that just leads to a, a certain amount of volume? We haven't looked at that. I'm just trying to think about how we would. Aspire isn't well suited to that kind of activity-based information in large part because the CRM, in my view, is not extraordinarily robust. The, the system is more meant for commercial landscapers who don't have nearly as many clients as you do or we do. So we would have to pull some sort of figure out a, a way to pull tasks and act, an activity report. And I'm not sure exactly how we would do it. Uh, probably would have to be actually outside of the spire. I'd say we have a lot of conversations about that topic 
internally with our sales team, especially when it's coming to renewal season and pricing adjustments, just what kind of resources are we investing in that client relationship, whether it's admin time or sales time or operational time. But I don't think we have a good way of pulling that information. Can you pull that in real green in some way? No, <laughs> no way. It's a pretty gnarly, it would be pretty gnarly data set because you'd have email, which is just Gmail, which I think we can get the backend data there of who's emailing in. And that does feed some of our data viz activity trackers. And we have a VoIP phone system, which has reporting. So we'd have to strip that out. And then we have a third service for live chat. We'd have to strip that out. And, oh, sorry, we have another service for texting. So I'd have to basically run four reports from four different platforms to get a sense of which email or phone number is calling in or emailing in, map that onto a customer list that I would get out of Real Green to figure out which email and phone number is associated with that account to tie everything to a customer number and then roll it up that way, which is precisely why I haven't done it yet. But I just can't, every time I hear that the office is getting just totally inundated, I also hear stories about a small handful of customers that call or email all the time because everyone knows them by name. And so I just, I can't shake the, the thought that it's the 80-20 rule, or maybe it's even more extreme. 5% of our customer base account for 80% of our office like communication flow. And if that's the case, like how are we missing the boat with them? And how can we educate them or educate ourselves to solve those problems and answer those questions without them having to call or email in 800 times? I don't know. I have no problem with them calling in at a high level, but if they're calling in that much or emailing in that much, clearly we're not doing a good enough job solving their questions or solving their issues up front. Or it could just be not the right fit. Yeah. That's why when you were talking, it it jogged my memory when you were talking about certain customers and certain reactions of like, I had a a conversation with a customer about a customer today where it's a husband, wife, they're they're in a lawn care program with us, but they don't want us to use any weed control products. Say, fantastic. We have a program designed for that. It's called our pesticide-free program. We'll swap you out of our traditional lawn care program and swap you into pesticide-free program. And they refuse to go into that program. And I have no idea why. The team has no idea why. Almost everyone on the team has talked to this customer. And I'm thinking like, it doesn't make sense to me. And so we're going to have to call that customer and understand like, you're in the wrong program. We can't tell you we're doing one thing, but then do a different thing. Plus we have a program that's dedicated for this exact issue. So let's just put you in that program and, and get you in the right, the right structure. But maybe it's just not the right fit. And I don't know why I just heard about it today. It's just a unique case and got me thinking. Yeah. We don't have a way of tracking that information in the Spire. We, we have done uh, analysis around our VoIP usage so we can track the number of calls that are coming into the office. And we've usually, we've, we've usually used that to just understand how busy our team is and when they need extra support, if we need to hire additional people or bring on temporary folks. The mapping that you're talking about, the exercise of trying to tie back phone numbers to customer lists. There's only a handful of people in your company. Maybe it's maybe the number's one Palmer that can do that and do it well and do it effectively. This is a different topic, but trying to do that with our paid ads campaigns, this is the first year that we've really invested heavily in in paid search in large part because of how successful it's been for you and talking with you about your history with it. And we have great information in Google Analytics around cost per lead and conversion rates. And we're really happy with those figures, but what we can't get visibility on without doing a lot of Excel analysis is, are these clients, are these leads, the converted leads actually converting to customers? And when I'm trying to cross-reference phone numbers with information in our system, the home phone and the office phone, I mean, there's all kinds of like, you know, Excel gymnastics you have to jump around to try to get to a directional answer. That's something I'm really struggling with right now. So the idea of trying to do that for activity-based client communication is like, it's going to put me out of my, put me out of my misery. I know. Well, it's luckily we don't do snow. So that's why it's like one of those winter projects. Luckily, there is definitely one other person at Mainly Grass who can do it. It's my CFO and a, a GVP of, of Genmark. So maybe I'll just dump that on him. That's a good test. Yeah. The lead thing, we've talked about this before, but like the lead thing is something that we struggle with too, where we have this unbelievable data and clarity around who's clicking what and how many people quote unquote convert, which is for us filling out a, a lead form on our website. But then there's this like huge absolute wall 
that like information cannot pass because then it passes basically over an email into an inbox then it gets input into the real green where we then actually present them with a quote and try and convert them from there so i've struggled with that and i basically just do everything in aggregate so i'm looking at what the cost for a conversion is on google's side and then what the closing rate is on our side with associated numbers and costs to create amalgamated cost of customer acquisition but would love to see exactly, oh, hey, like people who click this ad with this wording or through this copy are converting at a much higher rate to actual customers. So you can afford to pay a higher conversion cost through Google because you know they're going to convert better. I'd love that. But that is not feasible. And I honestly, like we've looked at the, the workaround and the workaround is, you create a dedicated landing page for every single ad you have in the Google universe, which has a unique source code, which then you physically copy over into the lead in real green. And then you run a lead by source report, which is PDF and try and do it that way. And that's just been talk about like too cumbersome. Like I, every two weeks when I talk to our marketing consultant, he brings up how it would be so great if we could connect like the full funnel. And I tell him, you and me both, man, it's not happening. I know that's, that would be a dream come true. We've talked to Aspire a lot about that. And we, you and I have talked about APIs and just trying to build some technology. I know you have some expertise in-house around building that technology. I just struggle with spending tens and tens of thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars on Google ad campaigns without really understanding which of those leads has become a Greenwise customer and what size of a customer and how long have they been with us? What you're just su- suggesting you're doing is a swag and it's directional, but for us, it's a significant amount of investment and it's just hard for me to continue with that program without having the confidence that it's working, you know? Yeah, it's definitely easier for me because the breadth and variability of services and size is much smaller than for you, right? So you could have a lead come in and turn into a landscape construction job that's tens, if not a hundred thousand plus dollars. I could have a customer come in and they could be a, they could be a $2,000 customer and that's two standard deviations above my norm. It's like my median new customer is $800. My average new customer is $900. And if you were to plot that on the histogram, the, the bell curve's pretty, like pretty consistent. That's what gives me confidence that looking at things in aggregate at a high level without knowing exactly like this ad performed this well precisely. But knowing on average, I pay 50 bucks for a customer to convert on a Google campaign and fill out a lead form. And on average, I'm converting one out of two customers into a closed lead. Okay, like unburdened, my customer acquisition cost is about a hundred bucks. Median new customer is $800, gross profit, Here's what my gross profit is per customer. Here's what my payback period is. I can get behind that. It would be great to know in more detail because then I could just be much more surgical in how I allocate funding to different campaigns. But I think that's an easier hurdle for me to get over because the uniformity of my customers and the uniformity of the services that we provide is much higher than my impression is for you. Paid search campaigns have targeted specifically organic lawn care and mosquito control. So those are the services where we're really trying to accelerate growth and where we feel we're most differentiated, at least today. So we've been focused on those. So I I have the sense that most of the folks, uh, I'm looking at our numbers now, we, one of our campaigns, we spent $12,000 on this year, not a ton of money in your world, but we've got 415 conversions. So 26, 27 bucks per conversion sounds pretty darn good. We're converting like 40, 45% of our, of our delivered proposals into contracts. So, I mean, that math shakes out, but you know, I couldn't tell you that 415, if 40 of those people are clients or 400 of those people are clients, it's probably somewhere in between. So if somebody is listening to this podcast and can sell me a solution to be able to have more precision around that data, it's something that we would find usually valuable and probably pay a lot of money for. The, the thing that's a little bit murky for us is we weren't using paid search until two years ago and we're still dipping our toe in the water on it. And our lead traffic was still very strong with, without the marketing dollars there. So what I'd like to be able to do is 
go through April of 2022 with paid search off and then go through April 2022 with paid search on and compare the differences. It would obviously we could do that year over year, but then you're kind of running an experiment in the middle of your green season. And that's a little bit of a risky strategy. I tell you just to go paid search on, man, it's going to work. Like those numbers, like it's, it's working. When someone fills out, if you're getting a lead, so the 415 leads, when those are coming over, are they just coming like same thing with me, like a lead form that then hits us like a shared inbox as a lead that then people are creating quotes off of? That and we have a call only campaign. So we direct link to a, a phone number that they can dial directly from Google. So why can't you just tag that? Aspire has tagged playing it. Why can't you just tag that as like a Google lead? And then you could figure out like how many of those are closing. If you're concerned, what you're saying is you're concerned that those like organic ticket mosquito customers, maybe when the lead is via a Google paid search campaign, the close rate isn't 40 to 50%. It's much lower. That's what you're concerned about. It's often the case that people, well, when you submit a form online through a landing page, by design, it's meant so that the client may or hopefully doesn't know that they actually clicked on an ad. So with those leads, we can tag them in our system and it's not hard to do because it comes in with a form. The call only campaign has actually been pretty successful for us this year, but for some reason we haven't been able to figure out, I don't know if this is a Google thing or with our agency, the, the phone numbers aren't coming through clearly. So sometimes the area code will come through, but not the full phone number. Sometimes the client gives us a different phone number that they're calling from. So when we try to like match up this data from Google or from our agency and with the data in our system, we, that we can't properly tag or accurately tag the leads because the client doesn't know that they called us from a Google lead to begin with. I see you see saying. what I'm saying? Yeah. It's the same issue of you have a wall in the middle of the sales funnel. Yeah. And I will tell you that the local service ad platform is a lot better for this. It, it just in terms of like data integrity, because I don't know if folks know Alex much about that. If you've talked about that in your prior podcast, what did it used to be called, Palmer? Google Guaranteed is like an offshoot of it. It's Local service ads, LSA, is like the parent of it. Google Guaranteed is like a, a subcomponent where it's essentially like, I'm not on Twitter, but it's like the blue check mark on Twitter that says you're verified. Right. If you are Google Guaranteed, you get a check mark next to your name when you present in the LSA like local pack. So I think you've been experimenting with that over the last couple of years and, and investing more heavily in it. So we, this year, more so than last year, although we can't seem to get nearly as much lead traffic as we'd like to get through Google Guaranteed. But nevertheless, like all those conversations are stored in like a single sort of repository and you have the, the call recording and the phone number and it's just much easier to figure out who called us and when and tag them appropriately versus these call-only campaigns through Google Ads. It's just a little, the, the data integrity is not there. No, I hear you saying. I think LSA is good. We actually just turned it back on after having turned it off for a while because... It got to the point where over 80% of the leads that were coming through were for lawn mowing. And thus far, even though Google My Business can distinguish between lawn care and lawn mowing, for whatever reason, LSA hasn't copied that mapping onto their system. So when you say lawn maintenance, it includes pest control, lawn care, aeration seeding work, but also lawn mowing. And you, ha you cannot uncheck lawn mowing. And that wasn't horrendous in like the peak sales season or the off-season for us. But then when it got to like May, June timeframe, we just got obliterated by false leads. I don't know if you do this, but you should, Austin. We you, dispute them. Yeah, you can dispute I know where them. you're going. <laughs> yeah. But we were disputing hundreds of leads and it was taking them months to get through the backlog. And you're totally at the mercy of Google saying yes or no. And what we found is they will not grant you the dispute if you say even anything remotely close to lawn care. So if they call in, as an example, this was the example was given to us. They call and say, hey, I'm interested in lawn mowing. And you say, sorry, that's not what we do. Like we're lawn fertilization and take mosquito spraying and aeration seeding company. And oh, sorry, thanks a lot. That's not what I'm looking for. Bye. Google listens to that call and they say, oh, you said lawn care. So no problem. Charge delete. Dispute yeah. lost. Which is just brutal. Yeah. We found this system to be, I think they've got some work to do on it. And I guess it's somewhat new, but there's clearly some tweaks that need to be made. But I, I think the frustration for us has been like, we can increase the dollar spend per lead as high as we want. And we're still not driving the traffic that we'd like to. So that's the first thing, which maybe somebody can share with me what I'm doing wrong there. The second thing is the dispute process. Once they render it 
denied or approved, like there's no recourse. You can't go back to them. And then on your third point, our office team doesn't know when somebody's calling us via Google guaranteed. So when somebody calls in and says lawn mowing and says, what's your minimum for lawn mowing? We're going to tell them whoever the number is, $55, $60. And without knowing that we shouldn't have had that conversation if we're following Google's rules and we don't want to pay for that lead. So it's just frustrating for us because we can't train our administrative team to filter because the client's not supposed to know they called via that program. We had that conversation and nevertheless, Google is still charging us the 18 or $14 for that lead and it keeps on happening over and over. I will tell you that the reason we haven't turned it off is it's just been super sporadic. We'll have a day where three or four leads come in and then we'll have a month where not a single lead comes in. So I haven't really been able to pick up on any patterns there. But also you do lawn mowing. So that's not as like hard of a cutoff for you. Frankly, it's like I've had that same frustration. Man, if I knew this was a Google lead, I might be able to do it differently. But I've thought about that and talked about it with the account account management team. That's a shitty customer experience. Like, hey, you're calling from Google. I'm going to treat you totally differently because I don't want to get charged by Google. You never know. Maybe they say, oh, yeah, I was interested in lawn mowing. But actually, now that you mention it, it would be great if I had some ticket mosquito services in my property. I'm getting smoked by ticks and I, I want to get some protection there. Great. I'd love to give you a quote. You still want to insert a level of just like normal human interaction into, albeit a, a digital campaign world. And even if we could distinguish between Google accounts, I honestly would probably tell my team, just handle them like any other customer calling in and treat them like you would want to be treated. And if that means I get charged, I get charged. Doesn't mean that when I talk to our Google rep, I'm not pissed at, at telling her the architecture for how to distinguish what services you do is in Google My Business. I don't care how big of a company you are. Like you got to be able to piggyback off of that architecture and just dump and duplicate it because it's already there. The other frustration that all landscaping companies have is there's no way to distinguish whether or not you, there's no ability to market snow on that platform, which seems like a, a huge miss. At that point, we've tried to market snow with Google ad campaigns in the past with very limited success. And it could be user error. We just, for some reason, we put ads out there that we thought made a lot of sense. We talked about residential services. We're really pushing zero tolerance for residential. So it's a, a smaller subset of the market, but we just had very little lead volume. On a two-month campaign, we might've had like, we were spending maybe 50 bucks a day and had 10 or 20 clicks, like almost nothing. So I just really couldn't make sense of that if it was a service that people just aren't going to Google to. You would imagine in today's world, people are going to Google for darn near everything. Especially on the snow side, like it's so in demand. The headlines up here are ridiculous. I was going to loop back to it, but you said you weren't seeing a lot of inflation on the snow cost side of things, whether it's de-icing or plowing? On, on the ice melt, no, actually we haven't. We just pre-purchased most of the ice melt we need for the full season, just in anticipation of having, I'm sure there's going to be supply chain shocks and shortages that we're just not seeing right now, but we were able to pre-buy most of our material. And on the labor side, I'd say we, we're seeing just a little bit more inflation than we're seeing on the landscape side, but not a lot. Our rates have probably, our labor rates have probably increased like eight or 9% this year, which sounds like a lot, but in today's world feels like fairly normal to me. So no, we're not experiencing that. You're, you're doing great. I don't know, I don't know where you're getting your salt. I'm going to have to call you after to figure out because I think across the board for Chenmark companies, it's like 25 to 40% up. We spend some time actually just figuring out if we could source salt from the mine. And so like, where is it? <laughs> Egypt, Bolivia, like how do we charter a barge? How are we going to get it to where we need to go? Then it's got to go on rail cars to all of our different locations in a nightmare. So like, that's not what we're doing. That price has definitely felt a lot like what fertilizer pricing has felt to me. The labor side, I'd, I'd have to check in with them. I don't know if it's been crazy, but like I, I have seen headlines the last couple of days where municipalities in the New England area are paying ridiculous sums of money for especially C, like CDL operators that drive those big DOT trucks to for roadways. I'm seeing $200, $300 an hour just for the person. They'll supply the truck. You just need to have the license to be able to do the work, which is yeah. nuts, nuts. I would say it's been a, a little bit of a breath of fresh air for us on the snow side because we haven't talked about this, but in our landscape construction business, plant material pricing has just been insane this year. We Every time we pull up our vendor price list, something's changed and there was just no way to really keep track of it or 
throughout the season. It was just every day. Usually we have price increases once a year. That was disconcerting. And on the the labor side, on the construction side of things, similar story, like just a lot of wage inflation. You know, obviously we've got to pass that through to our clients. We also want to try to do what's in the best interest of our clients. And to the extent we can keep our prices down or flat, we'd love to be able to do that. So in our snow business, like we just, we didn't have to increase things quite as dramatically because of that stability, which is actually a little bit surprising to me because it's, I mean, for those that don't know the snow business, it's just, it's really hard work. You know, you've got folks that who are, who, the folks who are doing the work have to commit their whole winter to it. It's incredibly unpredictable. It's very disruptive to people's lives. So it, in general, it's hard to find people for that service, but knock on wood, our snow season just started. We've, we've been able to get pretty decent commitments from our, from our staff. I have to imagine people are raising prices a lot more. I know our companies are raising prices more than it sounds like you guys are, but we're also face sounds like we're also facing input costs going a lot higher. I think for snow in particular, I think scarcity is going to be a big thing. I think customers, whether it's residential, commercial, if you haven't locked up a contractor by now, you're probably going to be a price taker. And there's just not a lot of supply out there. I've heard incredible stories of competitors of ours in our markets canceling contracts, good contracts, not because they want to, but because they know they can't service them. And they're having to make the, the toughest of all calls to just cancel some of their largest accounts that require the most labor and materials and, and equipment. They can't staff it appropriately. So they have to shrink their book of business. And that's not a sign of the times. I don't know. I don't know what else is. My guess is you're going to hear about that stuff. Like once stove starts flying, you're going to hear about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably viewing it with two rosy glasses, but I will say that for us, snow is an important part of our business. For you, I know you keep a lot of your folks on year round. For us, ideally, we'd move towards a model where we can keep our entire staff on for the full season, at least for the people that, that want to be here. And snow enables us to do that. And especially having a zero tolerance program where you're, you have more consistent work for folks enables us to do it. We have a pretty significant prepayment at the start of the season that allows us to sort of lock in a lot of our revenue because increasingly our costs are predictable. We're buying a hundred plus pallets of ice melt to start the season. We're keeping people on full time. So I think it's a model that hopefully will continue to work for us that will allow us to be able to retain and and attract people who want year-round employment, which in an industry that tends to be pretty seasonal, at least in the upper Midwest. Yeah, big time. I got a roll, but I will say one of our companies just announced a guaranteed 40 hours in the winter. And it's a pretty big gamble because we're basically smoothing out the season, the, the unpredictability of, of snow with their balance sheet. So far, it's been well-received, not surprisingly. We'll see how it actually executes, but won't know that until next spring. So I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, I look forward to that. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for trying the new format. This is great. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.